The passage that we have before us today, uh, John 8 verses 1 to 11, presents us with a bit of an immediate problem. Well, at least it presents me with a bit of an immediate problem because unless you are reading the King James Version of your Bible, then whatever version you're reading probably red flags this passage for you, either by putting it in brackets or by putting some explanatory wording either at the start or at the, the end of the passage, or it may even relegate the whole passage altogether to the footnotes. If you're having trouble even finding this passage in your Bible, you might want to check the end of the Gospel of John uh, because some versions pull this passage out and put it at the end of the Gospel. Now I could just choose to ignore all of this and power on through the passage, but I can't. My conscience won't allow me to do that and I think it would be insulting to everyone's intelligence to just pretend uh, that there was no warning at the beginning of this passage. The biblical scholars have seen something in this passage that they think needs to be brought to our attention and so we should pay attention. In life, as in biblical scholarship, things are not always black and white. You don't always get a yes or no answer. Sometimes it's a yes, but, or it can be a maybe. And as long as you're aware of the, the but, or what the issues are that qualify the maybe, then you're fine to proceed. So in order to do what I would call justice to this passage, we're going to stop and take heed of that explanatory warning that comes with this passage in most modern Bibles. In the NIV, the warning is in the main body of the text and it's right at the top of the passage, so you can't miss it. It reads like this, the earliest manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have John 7, 53 to 8, 11. What does that mean? Does that matter? Is it important? Should we be concerned about it? Does it change how we should approach this passage? Well, those of you who are regulars at Pathway will recall that during our monthly forays into Christian apologetics, which have punctuated our preaching series throughout all of this year, one of the issues that we discussed was the reliability of the New Testament. And we discussed what's called the manuscript evidence for the New Testament. And what we found was that compared to any other ancient text, including those upon which we base much of our history, the New Testament comes out miles in front in terms of reliability because of the enormous number of manuscript copies that we have and the relatively short period between when the original was written and the earliest known copy that we have. And that period of time is very important because earlier manuscripts are generally considered to be more reliable because, of course, they're closer to the original. If I'd written a letter and I gave it to you, you'd have the original. So you could be 100% certain that everything in it was exactly as I had written it and exactly as I had intended for you to read because it was me that wrote it down and gave it to you. If you decided to write a copy of that letter to give it to someone else, 
it's possible that you might not have got it exactly right. You might have skipped a word in your haste to get it written down. You might have had difficulty interpreting my handwriting and misinterpreted that way what I was trying to say. Now, if loads and loads of people had decided to copy my letter and other people had decided to copy their letters and others had copied their letters, hundreds of years from now, there would be thousands of copies of my letters and it would be relatively easy to trace back and find out what was in the original document. We would expect that a greater number of copies would lead to perhaps a greater number of copying errors. But at the same time, this enormous number of copies makes it much easier to compare and work out what was in the original. If there were only two copies of my letter and one said one thing and the other said something else, how could you ever know what I originally intended to say? But if there were thousands of copies, it would be a relatively straightforward task to piece together and work out where the errors had been made. If you had a mistake in your copy, that mistake would have been carried through everyone who had copied your copy of the letter and that branch of the tree would be contaminated. But the rest of the copies would not contain that same error. And following that process through for every discrepancy that was in the letter, you would be able to figure out what was in the original. And that is essentially what has happened with the Bible. For the New Testament, there are over 24,000 manuscript copies. And so biblical scholars have been able to rectify anything that is clearly a copying error. And this is important because it gives us great confidence that what we're reading in the New Testament was actually what happened and was actually what the writers wrote down. Very occasionally, however, we strike a passage such as the one before us today, and there's another one at the end of Mark's Gospel for those who are interested. Because those earliest manuscripts, those closest to the original, do not contain this passage, it is very likely that this passage was not in the original version of John's Gospel, but that it was added sometime later for reasons which we don't know. The fact remains, however, that in spite of the manuscript evidence against it, the historical evidence has been sufficient to persuade the biblical scholars that this passage is worthy of a place in our Bibles. The passage has been shown to be both authentic and ancient. It is grounded in the same oral tradition that supplied the gospel writers the accounts that make up their gospels and it has met with the criteria used to determine that what was in the gospels actually reflects what Jesus did and said. The question remains then, what shall we do with this passage? How do we approach it? And Mickey Klink is an associate professor of New Testament at Biola University in, in the States. And he's provided an analogy which I find most appealing. He says that this passage should be treated as a text on probation. So just like a driver on a probationary license, 
has every right to be on the road. They have every right to drive a car and they're given all the same rights and privileges as anyone else on the road. They remain on probation. Only in the case of this text, the probation has lasted for 1300 years. How do we treat drivers on probation? We treat them as we do any other driver only perhaps we should be a little bit more cautious around them and be aware of their limitations. And I learned that lesson the hard way when I was sideswiped on a roundabout by a P-plater who cut in front of me. Being aware of their limitations is why we don't let drivers on probationary licences instruct learner drivers. We don't allow them to act in such an authoritative role because we know that they're not yet capable of doing that. And I think that's a good way of thinking about this passage. View that little comment about the earliest manuscripts and other ancient witnesses not containing this passage as a warning sign. Think of it like a pea plate and let it serve a similar function. So we treat this passage, which has stood the test of time through so much academic scrutiny to remain in our Bibles as we would any other, except that we're aware of its possible limitations. So we're not going to use this passage or any other one that would be like it as the foundation for any Christian doctrine because it is not capable of bearing the weight of such authority. And all of that is absolutely perfectly okay because there is no Christian doctrine that is based solely upon this passage. What this passage does nicely for us is to simply present a picture of some of the key Christian doctrines that are found elsewhere throughout the Gospels. Removing this passage from the Gospel of John would make absolutely no difference to the overall message of the Gospel, nor is there anything in this passage which alters historical fact or Christian faith or practice. Indeed, the key teachings of this passage can be found, all of them, elsewhere in the Gospels. In fact, as we'll see, the key teaching of this passage is the main message of the whole of the Gospels combined. So should we be concerned about this passage being in our Bibles? Well, do any of you stay awake at night being concerned that there are pea-platers on the road? Of course you don't. The very fact that there are pea-platers on the road proves that we have an effective system of scrutiny in place and testing for our road users. And so it is with our Bibles. The very fact that this passage is there and that it's highlighted for what it is with its own version of a pea-plate only serves to prove and, and to illustrate that there is a rigorous system of scrutiny and testing in place for all of scripture. And because of that, we can be confident in the reliability of the scriptures that we have before us. So having said all of that by way of introduction, it's time for us to strap ourselves in now with our peep later and enjoy this morning's ride. So hopefully by now you've found the passage uh, wherever it may be located in your Bible. For most of you, it will be John chapter eight, 
verses 1 to 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus has been on the Mount of Olives. Nothing unusual about that. It was his regular practice to retreat to the Mount of Olives for time alone and time to be in prayer with the Father. It's possible that he remained there all night. We don't know, but it does say that he appeared again at dawn in the temple courts. Nothing particularly unusual about that either. All the people gathered around him again, Nothing unusual there. Jesus frequently drew a crowd. Then presumably there was some sort of commotion as the scribes and the Pharisees march a woman through the crowd and place her in their midst. And here's what they say. Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Now, it's at this point in the story that I begin to smell a rat. Firstly, without any knowledge of Old Testament law, I think all of us realise that adultery, by its definition, is not something you can do on your own. So why is there only one person being dragged in for an offence that takes two to commit? If we did actually know our own our old, old, old Testament law, as well as the scribes and the Pharisees and Jesus did, we would know that indeed the law does recognise adultery exactly as we have described it, as an offence caused by two parties who are to be punished equally. Leviticus 20.10 reads like this, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbour, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. And this same law is repeated within the marriage code found in Deuteronomy 22. Deuteronomy 22 
reads for the next generation of Israelites like this. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. Now there is nothing even slightly ambiguous in either of those passages. In both instances, it's stated that both of them must be put to death. And yet here we have the scribes and the Pharisees dragging only one party before Jesus and deliberately twisting the law to suit their own ends. And exactly what their own ends were is laid out for us in verse 6. Clearly, it is not justice they are after here, nor are they concerned about upholding the law, because if they were, they would have dragged the offending man in along with the woman. They were doing this to trap Jesus. It's as plain and as simple as that. They wanted to trap him so that they would have a base for accusing him. If he said to stone her, he betrayed himself in his own teachings on forgiveness. And he would give the Romans grounds against him because the Romans denied the Jews the rights of capital punishment. If he said not to stone her, he betrayed the law of Moses and he would give the religious leaders grounds against him. It's a classic catch-22 situation. So here they are, these men who were supposed to be the guardians of the law, willing to deliberately misuse it to suit their own ends. They think that this is checkmate. But Jesus smells a rat too, there's no doubt about that. And he responds in a way which at first seems completely counterintuitive. He doesn't condemn the scribes and the Pharisees for their dubious motives, nor for failing to be adequate caretakers of the law, nor does he condemn the woman, who in the context of this entire passage is clearly guilty of the offence, although it is conceivable that she may well have been set up. That would certainly be one way of explaining the conspicuous absence of the offending man. What Jesus does is to bend down and simply begin writing on the ground with his finger. Now, please tell me that I am not the only person here who has wondered what Jesus was writing on the ground. From the very first time I think I ever read this passage, I've always wondered, what was he writing on the ground? Was it just some sort of doodle that he was doing on the ground, perhaps a way to, to create a deliberate pause? Or was there more to it than that? Perhaps he simply began writing out the Ten Commandments or some other scripture relating to the law. Perhaps he was more specific than that. Perhaps he looked at those who had dragged in this woman and he simply began scratching out some other women's names, one for each of the men who had dragged her in. Imagine that. Jesus starts his list. 
Tabitha, Abigail. And so he goes on and on and the sweat starts to form on a few brows in the crowd. Suddenly everyone has an urgent reason to leave. Perhaps it wasn't women at all. Perhaps there was something else that he scratched out that reminded each one of their own secret sins. And perhaps it wasn't really what, about what he wrote at all. Perhaps it was more the use of his finger scratching on the ground, reminding them of the finger of God writing the commandments on the tablets of stone for Moses. Perhaps that was enough to speak loud and clear to them. You're looking at the very same one who wrote this law. Perhaps that was what Jesus was doing as he wrote in the ground with his finger. Perhaps that was what made them skedaddle so quickly from the scene. All of this is speculation. We don't know. It doesn't tell us what Jesus was writing on the ground. But we do know what he said. He straightened up from his writing and he said, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And the scribes and the Pharisees would have had no doubt about what he meant by that. Jesus is basing his comments here on their own law, which requires that someone can only be put to death on the basis of two or three witnesses and that those witnesses must be the first ones to throw the stones that would put the person to death before the rest of the crowd would join in. That law can be found in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 6 to 7. So putting yourself forward as a witness had consequences. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 16 to 19 says, if a malicious witness takes the stand to accuse a man of a crime, the two men involved in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priests and the judges who are in office at the time. The judges must make a thorough investigation and if the witness proves to be a liar, giving false testimony against his brother, then do to him as he intended to do to the brother. You must purge the evil from among you. And so here they are, these men, in the very presence of the Lord. No thorough investigation was required against these men. All Jesus had to do was to hint at the seriousness of the situation that they were putting themselves in. If by their conniving and trickery they proved themselves to be malicious witnesses, then effectively they sealed their own fate because the punishment they demanded for her would be given to them. The smartest thing they did was to turn and get out of there as fast as they could. And the smartest thing she did was to stay. She could have turned and fled when the rest of the crowd turned and fled. No one was holding her there. 
There weren't even two witnesses there anymore to condemn her. So the charges against her had to be dismissed. But she didn't turn and flee. Instead, she stood and she faced Jesus and she received from him grace. Jesus straightens up a second time from his riding on the ground and he deals this time with the woman. If anyone could condemn her, it was him. Instead, he has just rescued her from what would have been certain death. And then he asks her if anyone is left to condemn her. No one, sir, she replied. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. Unfortunately, we often miss the whole point of this story because we try to identify ourselves with Jesus and try to use this story to inform the way we should deal with others. And the truth of the matter is that we fall a long, long, long way short of the mark set by Jesus. We are not Jesus in this story. The character that we should be identifying with in this story is the woman. This is not so much a story about how we should be treating others as it is primarily about how God has already treated us. This is a story of redemption. It is a picture of the Gospels in miniature. Here within the Gospel of John, we have a little Gospel within a Gospel. She was an adulteress. There is nothing in this story that would lead us to any other conclusion. How she got to that point, we don't know, but she definitely got there. She was guilty. Everything in this story says that she was guilty. And we are just like her, adulteresses or adulterers in our relationship with God. We are constantly entertaining whoever or whatever might vie for our attention. Under the law, she was deserving of everything coming to her, which in her case was a whole lot of stones and likely a long drawn out painful death. Her encounter with Jesus changed all of that for her. Like her, we also deserve the judgment and punishment that is due for sinners but an encounter with Jesus will change all of that. Now at this point, some people might be thinking, but hang on, if the law demanded punishment and Jesus claimed that until heaven and earth passes away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished, how is it that this woman could avoid the punishment that she clearly deserved under the law? Isn't Jesus here replacing the law with something new? And this is a very commonly held view among Christians that when Jesus came, it was kind of out with the old and in with the new. Jesus somehow made the Old Testament law completely redundant. And I guess this is why so many Christians today spend very little time reading the Old Testament because apart from the Psalms, they can't really see the relevance if everything was superseded by Jesus. Well, everything wasn't 
superseded by Jesus. Jesus' disagreement in our passage today is not with the law. It's with those who sought to apply it. Those who fastidiously applied it outwardly but missed the point inwardly. Jesus did not supersede the law. He tells us that himself. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill, he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. And he fulfills the law here in a general sense by showing its spiritual application. And he fulfills it in a specific sense by taking upon himself the judgment that should have belonged or the punishment that should have belonged to this woman under the law and exchanging it for grace. And that is exactly what he does for us as well. Under the law, the adulterous woman was condemned to judgment. She deserved the punishment due to her. Instead, she received the free and undeserved favour of God. Jesus set her free from her past and gifted her a future she could hardly have imagined given the situation she was in. And he offers for each one of us that very same thing. The woman stayed and received from Jesus what she did not deserve. She received grace. Her accusers fled. They were seemingly content with their pursuit of holiness, devoid of grace. And what they harvested was the fruit of hypocrisy. They were interested in the outward application of the law. Jesus recognised the states of their hearts and was concerned that the law also be applied there. Her terrifying moment became a transforming moment. It is for us a teaching moment because it is what the gospel is all about. Filthy lives made clean, grace received instead of judgment, mercy given instead of condemnation. To be confronted with our own sin and to realise how we stand on our own before God is a terrifying thing. And this woman knew all too well the reality of her situation. Unfortunately, we often do not. While we like to identify ourselves in the story with Jesus, sometimes we act a bit more like the religious leaders in this story in our haste to point the finger at the sins of others and cast blame on them without recognising the reality of our own position before God. All of us are adulterers in our relationship with God and we all stand filthy compared to him. This story is a picture for us of how God deals with our adultery and it is by grace. And the story, as the story concludes, the one who stood with her sin laid before Jesus received grace from him, while those who thought they could keep their sins hidden realised in the end that they could not and they turned and they fled from him. The story concludes with Jesus' charge to the woman, go now and leave your life of sin. 
And that's a very important part to this story. We are saved by grace, no doubt about that. There is nothing we can do to earn our salvation. But having been washed clean, it is our responsibility to stay out of the mud. We're going to conclude this morning with a very brief video clip, just a couple of minutes that I think helps us to visualise something of this concept of grace. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. What a wonderful gift. If you haven't received it yet, perhaps today is your day to stand before Jesus, receive that gift and be washed clean. For the rest of us, Try and stay out of the mud this week. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit, brothers and sisters, this week and forevermore. Amen.